0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday, time for a Vault episode. Today, it's part two of our series on fingernails. This episode originally aired on September 3rd, 2020. Uh, I think it'll be a scream. Let's dig right in. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our talk about nails, fingernails, toenails. In the last episode, we talked about how fast nails grow, what influences how fast they grow, uh, some strange uh, decades-long self-experimentation projects on the measurement of nails. And this time, we're going to get out of some of that scientific minutia and jump into the weirder world of nails and the the role that nails and hair play. Play in uh, a lot of uh, very, very surprising and interesting magical and religious beliefs. Yeah,
1: and it it makes sense that we would since the the nails that we look down at uh, every day that we you know find ourselves absent mindedly feeling uh, that in ha- that in fact uh, enhance our ability to engage uh, uh, physically with the world. They are strange to behold. Like we said before, they're both alive and dead at the same time. At least, as you know, in, in the way that we we think of them. You know, they they're obviously a part of our body, uh, and yet they feel slightly external. You know, there they are these things that are like claws, but not claws. So it makes sense that we would have some kind of complicated magical ideas
0: at times about what they are and what they do. Yeah, and I think some of the magical and religious ideas are going to connect with something that we talked about in the last episode uh, which was this the strange thing I was observing uh, about how our hard body parts the hard external parts like teeth and nails though you would expect them to be sort of like the the most uh, I don't know what you would call it, uh, like the most brutally disposable parts of our bodies because they're hard you know they're like what you put out front in defense or attack, but in fact, we've got these kind of vulnerability trauma obsessions with these parts of our bodies. Like if you just start worrying about what could go wrong with your body, how you could be injured, how it could be damaged. A lot of the natural places that people go to go to worry about these things are teeth and nails. Absolutely. And that's uh, that's why towards the end of the at the
1: last episode, we started talking a little bit about uh Glenn Danzig's fingernails and about <laughs> how, at least in some music videos or uh, posters that I kind of half remember um, from uh, my, my teenage years, I recall that he had sharpened fingernails. And I w- would wonder to myself, well, what purpose do those have? And indeed, you know, would sharpened fingernails aid you in in fights or something? Because I also remember like Stephen King novels and, and short stories that I also w- was reading at the time. You'd occasionally have a character show up that has sharpened their teeth down to, to, to file points um, or or perhaps even has uh, some sort of like sharpened fingernails I guess and uh, and, and I it brings me to wonder like would there be any kind of actual combat uh, or defensive, advantage to that sort of thing and we we mostly decided that there would not really be yes you can scratch your way out of a out of a scrape uh, here and there but uh there's also a big uh, possibility that you'll damage your uh, your fingernails if you're trying to use like sharpened fingernails to attack somebody more than likely if you encounter somebody with really gnarly looking fingernails that have been sharpened to a point or or indeed um uh you know just look in seemingly intentionally creepy, they probably are trying to look at least
0: a little bit like Nosferatu, right? And so this vampire association with long nails. In fact, we were just talking about this with Seth the other day, uh, and and uh, Seth, Seth uh, was sharing with us the idea that you know it, it's possible that the association between long fingernails and vampires could come from the idea that. Uh, Often in the old days, you might open up if you've you've exhumed a body from the graveyard and you notice that their nails look a little bit long. And so you think, wait a minute, are they still alive in some way? Are they getting up and roaming around and still growing body tissues?
1: Yeah, I I feel like this has come up on the show in the past before, and it certainly it it goes beyond the world of mere vampires. We talked about it a bit in the the episode where we talked about the the kappa, the Japanese uh, water uh, demon, mm-hmm. um, where you have varying uh, monstrous conceptions in the human imagination that are based upon. An analysis of a physical death to see what happens to the body after it dies and the seeming changes that take place in the body. And in the case of the vampire, yeah, it's like the bloated form, Uh, the impression, at least, that the hair is still
0: growing, the impression that the nails are still growing. So if you ask the question, is that true? The answer is no. It is not true that hair and uh, fingernails continue to grow after death, uh, at least not to any significant degree. Now, if the nails and the hair don't keep growing after death, that, that does leave the question of why so many people thought that that was the case. Why, why would you look at a corpse and think that its nails appear long? And the most common explanation for this tends to be based on the uh, dehydration of the corpse, that as the body begins to decompose, it loses a lot of moisture, which causes the retraction of the skin tissues around the fingernails and around the nail plate, which makes the nail plates look longer because there's, there's just less skin around them.
1: Now, this uh, helps inform more than just our idea of vampires. Uh, For starters, it also is factored into the the buried alive panics that have existed at different times. I believe we we discussed this a bit in an episode of Invention on various um, casket innovations. Oh, yeah. So the idea is, uh, oh, you know, you end up digging up this corpse later. Maybe you don't uh, assume that they were uh, some sort of undead fiend, but you might think, oh, my goodness, they were still alive for some time after we
0: buried them. They must have been buried alive. And this led to a fashionable demand in the 19th century for caskets with escape hatches and ways of getting out if you happen to have been buried alive.
1: Yes. So if if you want to catch up on that, do check out that episode of Invention. Uh, It may still be in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind feed from when we put a bunch of those out earlier in the year. But if not, you can find the dedicated feed to Invention. Even though we're not putting out new episodes of that show in that feed, you'll still find all of those episodes there for your listening.
0: I think it was a three-parter last October. Yeah, that's what it was. Now, uh, in
1: addition to this, you'll also find various myths and legends cons- that concern just general monstrosity in the world, and oftentimes you'll have a monster that has long fingernails. And this is roughly you know, associated with the idea that, okay, long fingernails imply a wildness, a kind of bestial nature of uh, the, the entity or the being in question. Right. What has claws? wild animals. Yeah, and the, the longer fingernails become, the more like the claws of an animal they become. Now there are exceptions to this. Uh, long fingernails are sometimes considered fashionable for females. Uh, we see we see a lot of that in, um, in modern culture, but then also you sometimes see it uh, as a fashion for males as well. Long nails, for example, were important symbols of social status at various points in Chinese history. And they were sometimes painted for visual effect, uh, but also sometimes to, uh, the, the painting or sometimes the lacquering of the nail was as much about strengthening the nail as it was about uh, making it look fancy, uh, which is an interesting point. And apparently this, we see echoes of this in other cultures as well. I think the ancient Egyptians um, are, are, are thought to have engaged in this sort of thing as well, strengthening the nail in order to um, uh, maintain its elongated uh, uh, structure. Now, later on um, in Chinese history, ornate fingernail guards were used to protect outer nails. So this might be like on the the pinky uh, finger, for example, and the the ring finger, uh, and uh, and we're, we're talking some pretty ornate. Uh, Uh, finger uh, coverings here. Uh, For instance, uh, the six inch long golden nail protectors that were worn by the empress dowager uh, Su Shi, who ruled China for 43 years from 1861 until her death in 1908. Uh, If you look her up, you can find actual photographs of her uh, decked out with these things.
0: Now, Robert, can you describe – is this more of like a a thimble-type covering that would go over the end of the finger and extend out from there? Or is it more like that finger armor stuff that uh, has joints and goes over the whole finger? Um, Not really
1: joints per se. Uh, It is – one gets the impression of uh, like long, tapering, uh, golden – fingertip covers um I, I think these this sort of thing has also been uh, utilized in dance in various uh, asian cultures oh okay. um, yeah so uh, they're really neat looking now in terms of just uh, longer fingernails in general the style uh, has also been popular uh, with uh, males at different times in chinese history with longer manicured nails uh, still having a residual cultural association with higher classes in society uh one uh, also sees the retention of a long pinky fingernail as a signifier of social status, uh, but then there are also varying levels of uh when you get into to the actual reasons uh that uh, individuals um, you know self identify uh, and uh, and certainly uh, um, uh uh, explain the, their, their pinky nail. They might be, well, it's for good luck. Or, you know, it might be uh, there might be some idea of divinational aspects um, of finger morphology. There are various sort of cultural ideas that seem to be floating around um, explaining you know, why one would have a longer
0: nail. If there's a class association that nails are, you know, for higher social status, I wonder if it has anything to do with demonstrating the lack of need to engage in physical or manual labor. Uh, yes. S- sort of along the same lines as, you know, th- there are some cultures, I think it was. Once common in uh, in European culture, for, and it was fashionable for men to wear like long, pointy shoes. And one explanation given for this is, well, a long, pointy shoe makes you look rich because it's a kind of shoe that you can't do any physical work in.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the best explanations seem to tie it to this like longstanding idea that it uh, informs social status. Uh, however, I should note that I've I've looked into this a couple of times over the years, and I've never found like a I, I have not found not to say it doesn't exist, but I have never found like a, a really good paper on this that really dives in with uh, a lot of the the information out there about this is more informal in nature. Mm-hmm. But um, it, uh, traditional Chinese cultural hierarchies do seem to re- retain their power. Though, according to uh, one paper, I was looking at Saving Face in China, Modernization, Parental Pressure and Plastic Surgery by Andrew uh, Lindridge and uh, Chufeng Wang, uh, published in the Journal of Consumer Affairs in 2008. Uh, so, you know, basically underlying the idea that you can you can have these ideas that are still floating around in society. And perhaps, you know, perhaps the, the rationale for them isn't, you know, 100 uh, percent In an individual's forethought, but it's just something that survives and is still done and perhaps on some level still does inform uh, that notion that I, I have this longer nail, which means I am of a higher social status and maybe don't have to engage in as much physical labor. Uh, for a, an historical example of this, uh, getting outside of modern uh, culture, um, there, there's a book that I've, I've been fond of for, for for many years titled Tales from a Chinese Studio. And it's a, a collection from 1740 of these various weird tales that were compiled by the author uh, Pu Song Ling. And uh, and it's uh, these are wonderful stories. I recommend anyone who's even halfway interested in in strange Chinese um, ghost stories. You should pick up uh, a a copy of this because uh, some of them are funny. Some of them are just really weird. Um, There's also a certain poetry to them and i and i understand that if, if one is actually reading these stories uh in mandarin uh are also um are also a lot of uh, various allusions that are going to be lost on the uh the, the english language translation reader uh, but they're still they're still tremendous as translated pieces
0: i think you've quoted from it before i, I have positive associations with this title
1: yeah uh yeah it's it's a, it's a great book and i think penguin has an edition of it um, So I I was looking back through that because I'm thinking, okay, if there's a good example of a monster with long fingernails, perhaps I'll find it in Tales from a Chinese Studio. Uh, I did not find it, but I did find uh, this little note um, uh, about uh, a particular line in one of his uh, writings that I had skipped over before. I didn't remember from before. Uh, Basically, um, uh, Pu Songling mentions the bard of the long nails. Ooh. Which the translators and editors of this Penguin edition identify as uh, Lee He, who lives 760 through 816. So he was a, a late Tang scholar, often characterized as a sort of, quote, doomed poet with a vision so intense the world will destroy him if he does not destroy himself. <laughs> Whoa. And, and so the, uh, the, the editors here, they, they, they compared him to John Keats.
0: That's interesting because uh, Keats definitely died young, but I don't really think of him as doom-driven in that way. Uh, when I think of doom-driven English poets, I guess I would think more like Byron or Percy Shelley.
1: Yeah, uh, Lord Byron definitely comes to mind, right? Especially with the, when it comes to like a dark bad boy status, walking around right. with a, a skull goblet and a pet bear on a chain. Exactly. Uh, and and interestingly enough uh uh i if, if you look up uh, some of uh, uh li he's uh, translated work he is sometimes described as this is from the amazon description to a, a nice collection of his work uh the bad boy poet of the late tang dynasty
0: <laughs> well then i i got to hear more from this bad boy okay. so was it was yeah. he a bad – was the fact that he was a bad boy at all related to the perception of him having long nails um well, We. Yes and no. I think. Uh, I think this
1: will maybe become a little more clear. Like for instance, I don't think the fact that that he had long nails was like the signifying bad boy aspect about him. I take that to be probably more in common with with professional scholars of the day. Like you know, you've, you're you're a you're a scholar. You're a man of, of words. Uh, you you certainly don't need uh, short nails to, in order to engage in a bunch of physical labor. Like you're a, a man of letters. I see. That being said, uh, he has a very gothic quality to him. Uh, The New Tang history of 1060 described him as, quote, frail and thin, with eyebrows that met together and long fingernails. Uh, He was also known as the demon talent due to his love of weird and exotic subjects in his writings. And uh, the the New Tang history also said that he, quote, felt himself already halfway across the boundary between the living and the dead. (laughs) Now, that being said, apparently he also wrote about Mundane topics as well, like you know, earth, you know, like food and so forth. So it wasn't just all ghoulish content. Um, <laughs> Maybe a spooky food. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, I think he generally, you know, wrote about food in an acceptable, you know, non, what we would think of in Western uh, uh, terms as a, you know, a non gothic uh, sense. Uh, but uh, I- anyway, if you if you look up his work, it is really quite beautiful. Um, uh, he is uh, probably apparently most famous for this poem, "Song of Magic." Strings that the editors and translators of the Pusong Ling text include. Uh, the poem itself was translated by John Fordsham in 1983's *Goddesses, Ghosts, and Demons: The Collected Poems of Li He*, uh, which you can you can buy in like a ebook or physical form. I'm thinking of picking up a copy, but but here's here's just a, a little bit from that poem. Quote. Blue raccoons are weeping blood as shivering foxes die on the ancient wall, a painted dragon tail inlaid with gold. The rain god is riding it away to an autumn tarn. Owls that have lived a hundred years turned forest demons laugh wildly as an emerald fire leaps from their
0: nests. Wow, that that is electrifying, man. I've got goosebumps
1: yeah yeah um like i say I, I think i'm gonna pick up a copy for uh, this halloween season um but uh, there was uh, there was another line uh, when I was looking at uh, the preview of that actual text uh fordsham wrote quote Lihi was temperamentally unable to write a conventional social poem. And consequently, he is very rarely dull. Uh, so apparently to, to be like a professional man of words, to be like, you know a writer of the day, you had to engage in a lot of sort of boring, sort of courtly writing. Uh, uh, the example that he gave was, it was apparently common to sort of, uh, to, to write to patrons and compliment them on, say, the birth of a, a child. And there's an example of this short poetic, poetic piece that he wrote to to such a patron and he makes it sound like fortune compares it to um, the child from the omen. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, About just how he describes this child as like being able to like see through people to their to their soul or uh, something to that effect. Uh, It's pretty interesting. So I I like the idea of this uh, this bard of the long nails who when he tries to fit in and be like just a boring poet, he can't quite do it. He's just a little too weird. But I should drive home that I don't think the long nails were the um,
0: were the weird thing about him. No, it was that he would write you a note saying, congratulations on the birth of your child who will one day flay my soul in the underworld. Yeah, that sort of thing. Um... So anyway, I, I encourage everyone to, to check out both of those authors.
1: But, but anyway, back, back to nails in general. Uh, long nails have, have apparently sometimes um, been seen as a luxury for those of upper classes in various cultures who don't have to, to truly labor with their hands. And I, I've eyed a couple of studies, uh, at least, that back this up, such as excessively long fingernails as a risk factor for upper extremity soft tissue injury, published in 2008 in the Journal of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. And another paper, Effects of Fingernail Length on Finger and Hand Performance, published in the journal Hand Therapy back in 2000. And this the second paper here recommends keeping fingernails shortened to at least 0.5 centimeters to, quote, achieve optimal functional
0: outcomes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, I I guess to be fair, I I laughed because I was imagining optimal functional outcomes of hands just in regular life. But I guess this is talking about therapy. So that phrasing makes sense.
1: Yes, yes. This this paper does seem to be narrowing its focus somewhat, uh, and, and I think it's also worth noting that uh, you know I I have, you know, for my own part I've encountered people with with very long uh, you know well maintained nails uh, you know sometimes very fancy looking nails that seem quite capable of manipulating their environment in say an office setting uh, though perhaps that's not that different from the sort of physical demands of uh, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a scholar in um, you know in in, in in China of old, uh, you know, you're, you're still not having to like actually physically dig in the earth or something to that effect. So, uh, so I'm not sure. I'd be interesting to hear from anyone out there who does um, who who has had long nails in the past or keeps and maintains long nails today like are there things that you find that they get in the way of or or are they just generally not in the way do you sort of adapt i mean obviously you know we 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 can adapt our body schema to uh, accommodate for any number of uh, of extra things it seems like just longer nails i mean that's even more a part of our body
0: than any tool or costume that we might acquire all right, it's time to take a quick break, but when we come back, we can talk about a demon warship made out of nails. All right, we're back, and I'm excited for this Joe because you
1: were you were about to uh embark on a journey and you're you're going to uh, uh, tell us about what may be the the magical fingernail story par excellence
0: i mean there are a lot of great magical fingernail stories that uh, that i'm about to get into but this might be the most uh most thoroughly mythological one the one that's like the most the most like a device in a story where the nails are sort of the macguffin though there's also a Mm -hmm. very good persian one that we'll get into but anyway So I want to go to the Prose Edda. This is a work that tells us a lot of what we know about uh, ancient Norse mythology that was uh, written or edited by the medieval Icelandic author Snorri Sturluson. In the Prose Edda, there are these collected literary works that tell many of the stories of Norse mythology, including the story of Ragnarok, the, the, the final confrontation, the destruction of the gods at the end of that era. and uh, there, there, But early on, there's a passage in the prose Edda just talking about ships, just mentioning what kinds of mythological ships there are. And it mentions one ship in passing, calling it the Naglfar. And it only says a couple of things about the Naglfar. It says that it is in Muspel. Muspel is a realm of fire the home of the fire giants who you don't want to mess with. And uh, the, the passage also mentions that Naglfar is the largest, meaning the largest of all ships. So what is this Naglfar, the largest of all ships? Well, later the author here tells us that the Naglfar will appear over the horizon during the calamity of Ragnarok when the gods will be destroyed And the author also tells us something about its construction. And here I'm going to quote directly from the work, quote, the stars shall be hurled from heaven. Then it shall come to pass that the earth and the mountains will shake so violently. that trees will be torn up by the roots and the mountains will topple down and all bonds and fetters will be broken and snapped. The Finris wolf gets loose. The sea rushes over the earth, for the Midgard serpent writhes in giant rage and seeks to gain the land. The ship that is called Naglfar also becomes loose. It is made of the nails of dead men. Wherefore, it is worth warning that when a man dies with unpaired nails, he supplies a large amount of materials for the building of this ship. Which both gods and men wish may be finished as late as possible. <laughs> but in this flood, Nagalfar gets afloat. The giant Hrym is its steersman. Or that might be Hrim, H-R-Y-M. But okay, yeah, so it's got, it's got giants on it. It's got the giant Hrym or Hrim as its steersman. And it's made out of the, the fingernails and toenails of dead men who did not care appropriately for their nails at the time of death that is that is gnarly
1: um I, I by the way i i am not surprised at all to learn as well that there is a uh, a long-standing swedish uh, black metal band that has nagelfar as its uh as its name <laughs> <laughs>
0: they've been active since the, the early 90s apparently oh wow i'd never heard of them uh but of course yeah i mean in anything this gnarly is going to end up as a metal band name <laughs> But I should also mention that in telling the same story, the story of Ragnarok, you know, sort of the destruction of the gods at the end of Mm -hmm. at the end of time, or maybe not of time, at least at the end of the era, the age of the gods, um, it is uh, the same scene is described in the Voluspa, which is an old Norse poem describing a lot of mythological events that we've mentioned on the show pretty recently, actually, Uh, I think, wait, which episode did it come up in? I cannot recall the context at the moment, but there's also a quatrain in the Veouspa uh, that mentions it. It says, "From the east comes Hrime with shield held high in giant wrath does the serpent writhe O'er the waves he twists, and the tawny eagle gnaws corpses, screaming, Nagalfar is loose
1: I love love the idea that it's uh, I don't know this is just my, me reading into it perhaps, but it, it feels like it's not you know, it's not just the bones. Uh, that are making, it's not bones that are making up the ship. It is the, the toenails and the fingernails that seem more like the, the detritus of, of the, the, the dead body. You know, it seems like this is like a ship that has been collecting and assembling like at the bottom of the universe <laughs> throughout all of human conflict, you know? And so that, that's why it is only, it is only completely finished towards
0: the very end of human existence. So there's a paper I want to talk about, Robert, if you're ready, called The Treatment of Hair and Fingernails Among the Indo-Europeans. Oh, yes. I,
1: I am ready for this because I, I've, I've read about um – Certainly nothing on the ship level, the shipbuilding level, but uh, I've, I've read about some of these, uh, these folk beliefs before.
0: Yeah. So this is a paper by Bruce Lincoln, who is a scholar of religious studies at the University of Chicago. It was published in 1977, and that's worth noting. This is an older paper. Uh, I'm citing it because it's still really interesting, but I just want to flag that it's older because it's possible that in the intervening years, some of Lincoln's factual assumptions might have been superseded by more recent anthropological or historical research. But I think the general thrust of the question he poses remains and uh, and some of the hypotheses he discusses in this article uh, remain extremely interesting. OK, so he starts like this, quote, one of the important lessons that is learned from the study of history of religions – is that there is no act so small or insignificant that it cannot take on symbolic importance in certain cultures. It is not always an easy task to recognize such symbolically invested action, although the existence of elaborate rules for behavior in a given situation may serve as a valuable clue. And if the identification of such action is sometimes difficult, the interpretation of a given motion, gesture, or ritual is even more delicate. And the example that he gives that he's going to talk about in this paper is the extremely careful, meticulous rules governing the treatment of clippings from the hair and nails in many cultures and religions throughout the world, especially in many cultures that are descended from, in some way, the ancient speakers of Proto-Indo-European, which I'll get into more later. So I'm going to start by just listing a number of examples that Lincoln brings up, and then uh, we can go back and talk about possible explanations for where these beliefs and, and religious practices come from. So the first one mentioned by Lincoln concerns the hair specifically, and is it's the right of the child's first haircut or first tonsure – practiced historically by some people of India, uh, and it's described in the Sankayana Griya Sutra. And the Griya Sutras are a number of manuals describing the steps of various domestic religious ceremonies. So I think specifically the kind of religious ceremonies that you, you might perform around the house. Okay. So this is performed for different children at different ages, I think also traditionally depending on caste. But the process goes like this in Lincoln's summary, quote, the child's hair is untangled and anointed, and a young kusa shoot is placed in it, kusa being the sacred grass of ceremonial. His hair is then shaved with a copper razor and placed on a mound of bull dung mixed with kusa grass that has been prepared to receive the hair. Finally, and here he quotes directly from a translation of the Sankhyana Griya Sutra, quote, to the northeast, in a place covered with herbs, or in the neighborhood of water, they bury the hairs in the earth. So that's interesting to begin with. You, you have this uh, ritual of at a certain age, the child's hair is shaved or cut, and then it is in a kind of symbolic ritual way planted within dung or within the earth. And there's this association with vegetation or herbs.
1: Interesting. Now, this may have absolutely no connection with it, but um, uh, a, a while back, I guess— Oh, man, probably more than, probably about a year ago, uh, my son and I had our hair cut at our house on our, our front porch. And afterwards, um, uh, uh, the uh, individual who cut our hair uh, encouraged us to take the, the clippings and put at least some of them in our garden um, in order to uh, help deter uh, creatures from eating uh, our vegetables. Hmm. I wonder if that actually works. I don't know. But I I mean, I've heard also similar uh, advice concerning a little like uh, hair from your pet like to, to keep rodents out of your garden, to put some hair from your cat, for for, for instance, in there, which, uh, which I mean, it sounds like it could work. I don't know that I've, I've seen anything to actually back that up, except I haven't noticed any, any mice or rats out there. But then again, um, just because you don't notice them doesn't mean they're not
0: there. Yeah, that's interesting. We'll definitely keep that in mind as, as we go through a few more of these examples. So the next one that Lincoln cites comes from ancient Roman religion, Uh, And this is the example of the Flamendialis, or the high priest of Jupiter, the chief god of the Roman pantheon. And the Flamendialis had numerous ceremonial requirements and restrictions guiding his daily activities. There were rules about where he had to sleep. There were rules about what he was supposed to wear, about what kinds of things he could touch or couldn't touch. And one of these restrictions – as reported by the second century Roman author Aulus Gellius in a text called attic nights goes like this. And this is with uh, some abridgments the ceremonies placed upon the flamen dialis are many and the forbearances are numerous. No one should cut the hair of the dialis except a free man. The cuttings of the nails and hair of the dialis are buried in the earth under a fruitful tree. There are almost the same ceremonies for the Flaminica dialis, and I think that's the wife of the high priest of Jupiter. And they say that other different ones are to be observed. For instance, that she is covered with a dyed gown and that in her veil, she has the shoot of a fruitful tree. Hmm. And there are other similar practices elsewhere in ancient Roman religion. For example, in the natural history, Pliny the Elder recounts how the Vestal Virgins are expected to observe special ceremonies in the disposal of the trimmings from their hair. Uh, Pliny writes, quote, Truly, there is a lotus tree in Rome, in the area of Lucina. Now, this tree is about 500 years old or older. Its age is uncertain, and it is called the hairy one, because the hair of the Vestal Virgins is brought to it. So note again the kind of rough similarities with the Indian practice here, the association with vegetation especially.
1: Well, hair is a a thing that grows out of us, not unlike a plant, right, uh, or some sort of vine. And then I guess a lot of this, too, just has to do with the fact that uh, hair and fingernails and toenails as well are these things that are paradoxically a part of us and yet not a part of us. And then when we trim them away or cut them away, mm-hmm. they are no longer part of our bodies, that they came from our bodies. And therefore, you could, you could see where you could easily lean into this idea that something appropriate must be done with these Parts of ourselves
0: yeah, and we'll get into more about that in the uh, in the part where we talk about the possible explanations for these, uh, but I want to talk about the next example Lincoln cites, which is German folkloric practices. He writes that there are a number of archaic rituals among uh, German, uh, people speaking Germanic languages uh, for dealing with the disposal of clippings from the hair and nails quote. Thus in Oldenburg, hair and nails are wrapped in a cloth and fastened under a tree three days before the new moon to cure infertility. Similarly, in Brandenburg, Dusseldorf, Swabia, and elsewhere, hair and nails are placed in a hole bored in a tree or are placed on a branch. This is often done when one suffers from some sort of pain, and the pain is said to go with these, moving to anyone who comes close to them. Now, there are some differences here from the other examples we already talked about because, uh, you know, Lincoln points out it's important to note that these practices he just mentioned are targeted towards specific magical outcomes, like the curing of infertility or the healing of pain, rather than a sort of free-floating ritual without a specific outcome object. But he notes, again, the similarity in the association between hair and nails with plant life. Again, hair and nails and then trees and grass and branches – And then finally, one more example, and this one is probably my favorite one. He draws attention to what is described in an ancient text in the Avestan language, which is associated with the ancient Iranian culture and is a foundational religious text of Zoroastrianism. So uh, this text is known as the Vindidad or the Vidivdat. And in this writing, the character of Zoroaster, also known as Zarathustra, and I think Zarathustra is probably the earlier pronunciation. uh, Zarathustra is speaking to the wise lord, Ahura Mazda. And uh, Zarathustra asks the wise lord why it is that the demon named Aosha, whose name literally means burning or destruction, why Aosha harms and punishes humans. And Ahura Mazda explains as follows... "...truly that, righteous Zarathustra, when one arranges and cuts his hair and clips his nails and then lets them fall into holes in the earth or into furrows, for by these improprieties demons come forth, and from these improprieties monsters come forth from the earth, which mortals call lice, and which devour the grain in the fields and the clothes in the closets." Now, when you must arrange and cut your hair and clip your nails in the world, Zarathustra, hereafter you should bear it ten steps from righteous men, twenty steps from fire, thirty steps from water, and fifty steps from the Burisman, which is a bundle of sacred twigs, when it is laid out, then you should dig a pit here— A disti deep in hard soil, and a vitasti deep in soft soil. To that pit you should bear the cuttings. Then you should pronounce these words, victorious Zarathustra. Now for me may Mazda make the plants grow by means of Asha. And Asha means right. You should plow three or six or nine furrows for zasora vira, meaning good dominion, and you should recite the ahuna vira prayer three or six or nine times. So here, in in this ancient Zoroastrian text, you're getting this elaborate ritual described for what you should do with the trimmings from your hair and nails. And that there are actual, like, real demonic consequences if you do not follow these rituals. Uh, And Lincoln points out several things he finds really interesting about the explanation from the wise lord to Zarathustra. So, first of all, there's the need to carry these clippings from hair and nails away from sources of purification. Remember the mentions of you got to carry them this far away from righteous men, this far away from fire, from water, and from the sacred bundle of twigs, because these are all... All potentially sources of religious purity, and it seems like there's a desire to avoid cross-contamination of all that purifying matter with impure matter that you've just trimmed off of your body. Uh, But then there's also, uh, Lincoln points out the use of troughs to demarcate a sacred space and then also the spontaneous production of monsters from the hair and nail trimmings that are disposed of incorrectly. And if that sounds familiar based on stuff we were just talking about, isn't that kind of similar to the supposed origin of the Naglfar, the nail ship? Uh, So in the Ragnarok myth again from Norse religion, this ship is built out of the nails of dead men as a result of their nails not being trimmed and disposed of properly according to the correct rituals. So if you do the wrong thing with your nails, you make an accidental donation to the construction of the demon's galleon.
1: Oh, wow. So this, th- this is fascinating, because on, on one hand, you can compare a lot of this with just kind of a basic understanding that this is bio-waste, and there's, there is is there there is an appropriate and an inappropriate uh, way to dispose of bio-waste. But then, of course, we have this, this whole magical domain as well of monsters and monstrous ships rising up from sort of the accretion of these materials.
0: Yeah, and it's it's uh, interesting uh, – Lincoln doesn't really get into this at all, but it's interesting to wonder about what role um, – I don't know, like practical biological facts could play into the origins of these practices. I don't know if there is, for example, any kind of real disease risk that you would get from mm-hmm. – from encountering the trimmings of hair and nails from other people. Perhaps there's some, but it seems like there would be less of that than there would be from, say, contact with blood or feces. Though I'm not sure. I mean, it's interesting that there's a mention of lice, and and one of the things yes. talking about being disposed of here is hair.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we might think, well, the the hair is the place where the lice live. Uh, therefore, you know, we're less inclined to pick up odd pieces of hair that we find uh, just out on the the road. I mean, certainly, I think we can all Mm -hmm. attest to, you know, being on a walk or something or and encountering a piece of someone's hair or, you know, hair clippings or perhaps even a fingernail or a toenail. And um, your first instinct is not to pick that material up and look closer.
0: Yeah. Put it in your
1: mouth. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, That that doesn't seem like a natural thing to do.
1: All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back.
0: All right. We're back. we've been talking about all these examples uh, from all over you know, different parts of the world of religious or magical significance that is granted to trimmings from the hair and nails and this list is far from exhaustive there are tons of examples in practices all, all over the place but I think just the examples we've talked about do help paint a picture of the wide range of myths, beliefs and practices about hair and nails and the many similarities between them but the question is why why do so many different cultures place this important ritual or religious significance on the correct procedures for trimming and disposing of hair and nails. Uh, Now Lincoln in his paper goes over several possible answers to this question that had been advanced by the time he was writing in the 70s. And I would say this uh, list of possible explanations is also not going to be exhaustive, but just to discuss a few possibilities. One is uh, a very influential theory that's best known for its articulation by the late 19th and early 20th century Scottish anthropologist J.G. Fraser in The Golden Bough. The Golden Bough has come up on the show before. Uh, Fraser, of course, is – very uh, in you know enormously influential but also heavily criticized we can talk about that in a minute um, but Fraser argues that many of these practices have their roots in a widespread ancient belief in what he would have called the contagious branch of sympathetic magic so the, the basic idea here is that if something was once touching your body or especially if it was part of your body that matter, that object maintains a magical connection to your body even after being physically separated from it. And thus, it could be used by a witch or a sorcerer to work curses on you or magically control you in some way. So if Jimmy the sorcerer gets hold of your hair or nail trimmings, you are in for a very bad time. And so in order to protect yourself from this kind of sympathetic magic, you either had to destroy your hair and nail trimmings or hide them very well or maybe also perform some kind of purging ritual to rid this matter of its contagious magical power. And I think it's interesting we still see evidence of this kind of magical thinking even today I mean there there is magical thinking that persists into the modern modern era whereby you can have some kind of power over a person by by possessing a, a personal artifact of theirs or an object that touched their body you know think about like doing magic on someone by by possessing their hairbrush
1: right uh there's also some interesting stuff about um just how we think about the contamination of of objects. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's this uh, study back in the 1990s by social psychologist Paul Rosen, and um, uh, this was actually recently mentioned on an episode of uh, the excellent uh, radio show Hidden Brain. Hmm. Uh, they pointed out that uh, they asked, in this particular study, they asked people if they would consider wearing Hitler's sweater and uh, and they they almost always said no, uh, and they said no, even if they'd been assured that it had been washed, then it had that it had been torn, you know that it had been punished for being Hitler's sweater, or that it had been symbolically cleansed by being worn by say Mother Teresa before being passed on and it was the you know, this this idea that that this this object, this sweater is is contaminated in a way that cannot be uh punished away, cannot be
0: cleansed away, it just remains impure in a completely irrational manner. That is really funny. I mean I, I can just say for myself, like I I rationally do not believe in any kind of sympathetic contagious magic. So I, I don't think like Hitler's evil would be contained in the physical sweater in any way, but still I wouldn't want to put it on. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, I have a lot of nitpicky questions about that that scenario. Like, is it a good sweater? Like, is there anything notable, notable about the sweater other than it was Hitler's sweater? Because obviously, I'm not going to just wear a, sw- a sweater because Hitler wore it. But what if I like, was at a store and there was like vintage stuff and there was like this really nice sweater. And I'm like, oh, this is nice. And uh, then I ask, why is it so cheap? And they tell me, oh, because this was Hitler's sweater, then, okay, that might be different because I have some pre-existing interest in it. There's something about that sweater that's really neat. Uh, I don't necessarily get that from this this limited scenario. Uh, You know, it's it's kind of implied that the notable thing about the sweater is that it was Hitler's.
0: Well, you know, I actually can think of a, a, a reason I wouldn't want to wear that sweater or own it, even if, even though I don't believe in any magical associations, which is that, I mean, I guess if you were to wear a sweater that you knew had been worn by Hitler, you'd probably end up thinking about Hitler all the time. And, you know, it's like every time you put it on, you have to be like, oh, yeah, Hitler. And you yeah. just don't want Hitler in your brain that much.
1: Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, one encounters this with the... um you know, the struggle to separate, uh, say, an artist from the art uh, that can sort of be the Hitler's uh, sweater scenario in some cases where you're like, OK, there's nothing wrong with the sweater, but I can't wear it without thinking about Hitler. So I just don't think I'm going to
0: wear this anymore. So it's worth noting that Fraser's work on the origins of religions, uh, again, as I said earlier, was both enormously influential and has come under a lot of criticism. I, you know, I'm I'm not deep on this, but I think one common criticism is that Fraser would sometimes, I think, kind of fudge or cherry pick the ethnographic evidence he cited in order to make things fit more cleanly into his broader theories. And, you know, this is something I think that uh, a lot of writers who have grand theories about human culture and society end up being guilty of. Uh, So while The Golden Bough remains a fascinating read, I would advocate that you shouldn't rely on Fraser alone as your sole source for anything. And in Lincoln's analysis of Fraser's thoughts on uh, on the origins of these uh, these rituals for dealing with hair and nails in in sympathetic contagious magic, Lincoln thinks that well probably a lot of uh, practices do have some kind of roots like that, but he's not convinced that contagious sympathetic magic lies at the root of all of these practices, and certainly not the practices in the cultures that uh, that have some origins in the speakers of Proto Indo European, because he has a different theory about that that we can get into in just a minute. Lincoln also mentions the work of an anthropologist named Mary Douglas, who is a very influential twentieth century anthropologist. Uh, she proposed that uh, that within human religious thinking quote, that the body is a powerful model or image which can which can represent any bounded system and which most often represents society itself. The limits of the body then represent the limits of society, the points at which it encounters opposition and danger and must thus be treated with appropriate care. So she's arguing basically that we symbolically make an an equivalence between our bodies and the society at large, and that margins in general are dangerous and ambiguous places. And thus the things that come off of our body represent ambiguity at the margins in the larger context of symbolic thinking about the society. So you have to carefully regulate this marginal body matter. And uh, Lincoln in this paper, he, he similarly thinks this idea is interesting that it might explain some things, but he's got a a, a different theory That is based in the Proto-Indo-European creation myth. So the Proto-Indo-Europeans are a hypothesized prehistoric culture that we know about primarily through reconstruction of their language, which is a direct ancestor to a huge number of historical and existing languages throughout Asia and Europe. Just for example, English has a number of roots in different languages, including, but not limited to Germanic languages and Romance languages. But both Germanic and Romance languages themselves have roots in Proto Indo European language. So, you know, there was a root language that influenced these derivative languages that developed in, you know, different ways. And then those derivative languages came back and in a way combined to influence other languages like English. The Proto-Indo-European people left no written records, but linguists have been able to reconstruct a lot of their language by... Tracing back similar word roots in a widespread catalog of languages. Uh, similarly, scholars have tried to reconstruct other things about them. We, we don't know a lot of things for sure, but they probably lived somewhere around southern Russia, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan, sort of between and to the north of the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, probably a few thousand years BCE. Uh, we don't have any direct records of their religious beliefs, their myths, and their practices, but. Scholars, including Bruce Lincoln, have used clues from uh, other descendant religions to try as best as possible to reconstruct elements such as their creation myth. And Lincoln explains his hypothetical reconstruction of this creation myth as follows, This myth, as I have established elsewhere, told how the world and all the creatures in it were established by the first act of sacrifice. In the primordial offering, the first priest, Manu meaning man, dismembered the first king, Yemo meaning twin, and from his body built up the material world. Now, certain steps in the process of creation were described in this myth, steps whereby the body of the primordial victim became the world, thus his skull became the heavens, his eyes the sun and moon, his blood the seas, and, what is most important for the issue at hand, his hair became the plants and trees."
1: Oh, this is a great point.
0: And so Lincoln quotes – he goes on to quote a bunch of related ancient religious texts that serve as evidence for his reconstruction of the myth in this way. Um, And of course, we don't know that this is actually what their creation myth was like, but it seems like a reasonable approximation of what their creation myth might have been like given what we know from a lot of other religions that seem related to it. And this is, of course – I mean you can immediately – Think of other examples of uh, creation myths in which the parts of the world are made out of the body of a slain primordial foe. Uh, Think about the ways that in, say, the Inuma Elish, that the body of Tiamat, the dragon, you know, the sea monster, gets turned into the, you know, the mountains and the sky and the seas and all that kind of stuff
1: yeah yeah this is something you do see in a number of different mythologies like the if, if nothing else you could even summarize just to say that the the body the primordial body uh, of beings such as this are are important in the way that they are then taken apart and
0: then redistributed, and those parts become important aspects of the world that follows. Right. And so Lincoln says that, uh, you know, if his reconstruction of the proto-Indo-European creation myth is, is basically correct is, or is on the right track, that a lot of religious practices of round disposal of hair and nails in cultures that are in part descended from the proto-Indo-Europeans could be rooted in a recapitulation of this creation myth – and this draws on a strain of thinking that I think uh, in some way is associated with uh, Eliade, for example, that a lot of religious rituals are in a way supposed to be a reenactment of a foundational myth.
1: Yeah, yeah. The idea that, 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 that everything we do is only important in the uh, archaic sense
0: if we are uh, recreating something from our founding myths. Right. So that's ultimately Lincoln's theory here what what he thinks best explains the widespread nature of these these practices about the disposal of hair and nails that he thinks when you dispose of hair and nail clippings in the correct way you are uh, furthering the life of the world's vegetation in keeping with the creation story uh, the sacrifice here is your own body and the sacrifice of hair uh, originally he thinks hair and the nails were sort of added on to the hair sacrifice Feeds the trees and the grasses the same way that this primordially slain foe originally created all that vegetation. And uh, and then Lincoln says the other half of the coin is, quote, when such care is not taken, when disposal is not a ritual and does not repeat the acts of a mythic model, the reverse can be the effect. For if proper disposal serves to create the cosmos, then improper disposal can decreate it, or to put it negatively, can serve to create chaos out of cosmos. And think of the examples, again, we discussed here, the destruction of crops by lice demons from the Avestan text, you know, the ancient Zoroastrian text, or the creation of the Naglfar, the ship that brings monsters to deliver the violent end of the world and the destruction of the gods that's made out of the nails of dead men improperly cared for. Uh, so obviously, I, mean, I would say in my final thoughts, obviously Lincoln's idea here about the origins of these practices could be wrong. But at the very least, it provides some really interesting scaffolding for understanding ways in which complex symbolic religious thinking might enter into what we would consider an extremely mundane grooming practice. How uh, it's, it's possible that just clipping your nails and cutting your hair to many people might have cosmic significance because of the myths that informed their worldview. Yeah, this
1: is this is all very fascinating. You know, it, it gets to the sort of the ambiguity of what our nails and our and as well as our hair, like, well, what what they really are. And and then, yeah, what are we supposed to do with them once we once they leave our body? And then what sort of ideas do we end up building up about uh, those things and our identity and our place in the
0: cosmos? Yeah, totally. So maybe uh, maybe if if you're somebody who has, a, say, a partner or a roommate or a family member, who gets mad when you just like clip your toenails in a willy nilly fashion? They shoot all over the room and you do not collect them in a clean and tidy way for proper disposal. Think about this interpretation of the Proto Indo European creation myth. What if, what if you are somehow creating chaos out of order by doing so and you are summoning demons up from the earth?
1: Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, and I, th- I think there there's probably like a, a wide variety of different uh, takes on this as well. Like I, I think I've run across uh, examples of um, a Chinese superstition uh, that at least exists in some places where you are not supposed to trim your toenails at night uh, mm. while it's dark outside. Um, or not to trim them outside at, at night. Uh, for my own part, I, I mean, I prefer to, to trim my uh, my nails outside if I can. I feel like that just simplifies the whole scenario, you know. Um, you don't have to worry about finding them if they go flying or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> now, one thing that comes to my mind is, you know, in terms of the, 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 the parts of our bodies that we leave behind on a regular basis, I mean, humans have it. Fairly simple, you know, it's just the most mostly just the, the the nails and the the hair, and but and yet we still manage to build up all these fabulous ideas to construct demon ships of the mind. Um, imagine what it would be like if we if we like molted uh, and left behind an exoskeleton that resembled ourselves, you know, sort of like the the cicada shell that is left behind. Or imagine that Ooh, yeah. we did something uh, along the lines of squid that leave behind a, a pseudomorph, uh, you know, a, a, a cloud of, of ink that is in the shape of their body to fool predators, that sort of thing. Imagine what sort of like strange ideas about self and former self uh, such beings, uh, intelligent beings might have.
0: Yeah, can you imagine the religion and the religious practices of intelligent arthropods that had to molt and have a whole body shell that was left behind? Oh man, that that would be good. That's 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 something good for your sci-fi novel there.
1: Yeah, I mean, what shape would it take? Would it be would there be like a you, would you have like special burial grounds where all of your your various um uh, you know uh, exoskeletons go once you've morphed out of them um do, do famous uh crab people do do their exoskeleton moltings uh, wind up in a museum somewhere <laughs> uh, i don't know there's so many questions to ask a- as always uh if, if you've run across any examples in science fiction or fantasy that deal with these uh, sort of issues we'd love to hear from you we, we always love your uh, uh, to to hear um uh, uh, advice from listeners on uh, on old works of science fiction and fantasy or new works as well um, li- likewise, we touched on a lot of different, uh, traditions and cultures in this episode, especially. Uh, so I-, I would love to hear from absolutely anybody who has insight on this, uh, particularly with, with, with long nails, for example. Uh, do you uh, keep your nails long? Have you ever kept your nails long? Um, you know, r- right in, I'd like to, to know how that has impacted your life or not impacted your life. Uh, likewise, uh, if there's a particular uh, tradition in your culture or your culture of origin, uh, I would like to hear about that as well. And certainly, as Joe mentioned, if there are any particular practices that you engage in, either culturally or just sort of as a as a, as a quirk of your own individual nature regarding your your, your nail and hair trimmings uh, we would love to hear what they are totally in the meantime if you would like to listen to other episodes of stuff to blow your mind you can find us wherever you find your podcasts and wherever that happens to be we just ask that you rate review and subscribe
0: huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson if you would like to get in touch with us uh, to answer any of the questions Robert just listed or if you'd like to suggest a topic for the future, or you've got any other feedback on this episode, you can email us at contact at stuff to Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.